0: The Energy Gang is brought to you by Solar Edge, a global provider of solar inverters and solar panel optimization electronics. Solar Edge is a leader of the DC optimizer market, a leading supplier of inverters to the U.S. residential market, and a top five supplier to the U.S. commercial market. The company is active in over 91 countries, having shipped over 11 million power optimizers and over 450,000 inverters. To find out more about Solar Edge's inverters and optimizers, visit solaredge.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. 10 years ago, Elon Musk outlined his plan to change the car business. Now he's out with another manifesto on how to upend not just car manufacturing, but the very concept of mobility and the fabric of our energy system. We will discuss. Then, it's energy and campaign politics. We'll look at Hillary Clinton's pick of Tim Kaine and examine Donald Trump's relationship with fracking tycoon Harold Hamm. Finally, we'll take the pulse of regulators who debated how to grapple with distributed resources at a big meeting this week. Welcome to the meeting of the minds. My brain trust, Katherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw are with me as usual. Katherine's in Washington DC, fresh from a trip down to Nashville. Hey Katherine.
1: Yeah, Music City, great place.
0: Oh yeah. And we'll hear about your trip. I'm sure that the um, conversations you had in the regulatory sphere may not have been as exciting as the music you listen to, but exciting for our audience nonetheless. Jigger Shaw's in New York City. Hey Jigger. Hey, how you doing? Excellent. Good to hear from both of you and we've got a great show coming up we are of course back on tesla this week the company if you hadn't noticed is undergoing a major transformation and it actually starts with a very simple change last week tesla motors dropped motors from its name and is now just calling itself tesla this is an indication that the electric car company is thinking about much more than cars and Musk went way beyond indicating a shift. He explicitly spelled it out in a blog post last Thursday called The Master Plan Part 2 His first master plan, which was published in 2006, described the company we know today. Build an expensive electric car, improve manufacturing, build a less expensive car, grow manufacturing more, and finally get to high volumes and build a mass market EV. While Tesla hasn't always hit Musk's ambitious timeframes, it has largely achieved his original vision, or at least is on a clear pathway toward that vision. Part two is much, much more ambitious. It includes building a seamless solar plus storage offering, dominating grid-scale storage, revolutionizing bus fleets, tractor trailers, and trucks, and making shared fleets of autonomous vehicles. As Musk described in his post, quote, starting a car company is idiotic. And an electric car company is idiocy squared, unquote. So, is his latest plan idiocy cubed or just the right amount of Muskian ambition at just the right time? Jigger, you like ambition. You're an ambitious guy yourself. You also like to point out when people are getting too big for their britches. Where does Musk's plan fit into that spectrum for
2: you? Well, so, um, so funny enough, so I mean, I wrote sort of a blog post on LinkedIn um around what I thought his next plan should be. Um and then he actually and you t- were really bullish there, right? I was, and he actually tweeted it out, which was, I thought that was yeah, funny. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Um but he, then he didn't actually stick to it. Like I I just think it's a little bit too big, right? Like I mean at the time at which you say you're going to do all these changes to the fundamental way that we transport goods and services through electric trucks and then you um bring in autonomous and you bring in all these other things, It doesn't really square with his first plan, which was really sort of a product-based plan. His next plan includes regulatory affairs. It includes service offerings. It includes all sorts of other stuff, which it just seems really hard to actually gauge whether he's going to be successful or not because it was really light on the details necessary to judge the plan.
0: Right. And in fairness, he didn't even really give a time frame either so we can't even really judge how quickly he wants to do this i mean he wants to do it fast in traditional musk fashion he probably wants to do it as fast as possible and uh probably in an impossible time frame, but we don't even really know how long it will take to play this out, and he hasn't given an indication. So,
1: when his first master plan came out in two thousand six, didn't everybody poo poo that to say, "Oh yeah, you're going to build a sports car and then make it more and more affordable"? I mean, it, it seems like he's got he's had ten years under his belt. He's done what he said he was going to do in the first plan. So now, yes, the second plan is really big, but if you have a longer time to do it, I, I don't doubt that he's got some strategies aligned to do it
0: Mm -hmm. it's a fair point and he actually mentions that in the post itself he said in 2006 when i wrote this plan i specifically said here is our plan to get to a mass market ev i don't want people to just think that i'm building cars for the ultra wealthy and he said well as soon as i published that people misinterpreted my message and they ran with that anyway so uh, a lot of people are of course going to criticize this i agree with jigger that there's not a lot of detail here But uh, I agree with you, Catherine, that there's a lot of really good stuff in here. The question is, what's the time frame? And, uh, you know, Elon Musk is naturally going to have his critics. But no, 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 it's not.
2: It's not about critics, right? I mean, when I wrote the plan for the solar as a service, which is now, you know, I think the dominant plan around the world, that's wonderful, right? But if I had then said, great, you know, now it's going to be utility 2.0. And that means that utilities are all going to embrace like DERs. It's just too broad. It doesn't mean anything. Right? It just it's sort of like, okay. And by the way, by the way, how's Jigger gonna do that? Right? I mean, it's not gonna be Jigger. It's gonna be Jigger and seventy thousand other people who do that together. And, you know, it's like I just think that like even if his vision comes true, it's entirely likely that he has nothing to do with it. Why do you say that?
0: Just because he's gonna be on Mars. I don't
2: know that <laughs> No, there's like 16 electric bus manufacturers that are amazing right now. So electric buses may be hugely successful, with, and Tesla has nothing to do with it. The same thing's true with, um, you know, with like driverless vehicles. Uber may figure out a way to get all that done without Tesla. So like I, I don't, I, I mean like now he's sort of writing a book like, you know, like Amory Lovins would write or like Tom Friedman would write. That's not the same thing.
1: I don't know. It feels to me like it's really building on what he's already done. So he's going to integrate solar and storage. He's been doing storage all along, so that shouldn't be that difficult to do. He's going to make it be like the cars, which is something everybody wants because it's cool and beautiful. And that's all part of the way he gets his business going, just the same way Apple did. And then, I don't know, it feels like everything he's doing is building on what he's already done. So the autonomy is just making it 10 times safer. Yeah, he's going to need to do that to make his cars do what they want to do and then all this ride sharing is really building on what pe- what's already happening and he's using his technology to meld with what people are where people are already going with the sharing economy so i feel like it's um other than maybe the bus issue i feel like it all builds on what he's already been doing in a, in a pretty you know in in a way that seems pretty logical
2: so let me say it a different way right so in my in my blog post what i predicted was that they would actually combine Um, formally the solar and electric vehicle offering and actually go to people who basically wanted to just pay 800 bucks a month and do that. And then he would vertically integrate into insurance. He'd vertically integrate into service. And he would actually provide a white glove service on all of that stuff. Right. So you would literally just say, here's 800 bucks a month. Now make sure I have electric vehicles whenever I want them and make sure I have um, like, you know, clean energy from my roof. Right. Um, Which is a product based thing that he could actually accomplish. But I think that then when you try to talk about autonomous vehicles and all the other pieces, it starts to break down, right? Because he, he talks about climate change. I think there's a number of studies that now show that autonomous vehicles may not actually lead to um, carbon reductions, right? It in fact, may lead to more miles driven. Um, and even if they're electric, that's actually not great for the planet.
0: Yeah, I don't want to get too sidetracked on this, but I think it's a, an important thing to address, right? It's up for debate whether or not autonomous vehicles will reduce emissions, according to Musk's vision, I think he believes it will. So if you have a lot of people who don't want to own cars, and they've just rent out their car and allow others to borrow it during the day, if they're only using their car 5 to 10% of the time, or you have these massive fleets of vehicles, enterprise fleets, or fleets uh, for your average consumer, then in theory, you do take cars off the road or more efficiently use automobiles. So like I think that there's a lot of debate, and it's very unclear. But according to Musk's vision, if we take that to its log- logical conclusion, I can see carbon emissions going down because car ownership drops way down in, in concert.
1: Yeah, and part of the vision is all about fleets. And so that that leads one to believe that, and, and also urban transport, high-density um, high urban transportation, which will be very much more efficient than having more cars on
2: the road. Well, we'll see. I I think this gets complicated really quick, right? Just because I think, I think like you know, if if he's trying to emulate Steve Jobs, then that's a product company, right? Which is along the lines of what I was suggesting. If he's trying to actually become more of a manufacturing prowess at the Model Three and all that stuff, that's more Henry Ford, which I don't know that he actually wants to do, and I think it's a huge risk in his business plan. And then if he's trying to actually create change on a enterprise basis along infrastructure, then it's more like John Chambers at Cisco, which I don't think he's actually putting forward. Right. And I, it just seems to me like, I think he likes the innovation part. I don't actually think he loves the execution part.
1: Well, with the so the Gigafactory is supposed to open pretty soon. And, the Model 3 will be 98% sourced in the US. That is way higher than any other supposedly American made car. I think the next one is like 75% sourced in the US. So he'll be a legitimate US car manufacturer. I see this as the Henry Ford, you know, trying to, um, you know, you create something, everybody wants it, only the rich people could get, but then you make it so everybody can have it and everybody's all teed up to want it. And I think if you could execute on the production, He's probably in good shape.
2: Right, but why would you think he could execute on production? Because I mean, he, he
0: launched a rocket and it has launched payloads into space for 30% right, cheaper than the Russians or the Americans could do it. Right, like, but
2: those are still $40 million, $30 million deals, right? I mean, I'm just saying Steve Jobs never said that he was good at logistics, right? He had Tim Cook. Like, that is who did all the work to actually get all this stuff done. Who is his Tim Cook? I don't know, J.B. Straubel? J.B. is a technology guy. I mean, like, that's the problem, is that Elon fashions himself as both Steve Jobs and Tim Cook, and I think he needs a Tim Cook.
0: Look, I I think Elon has so far proven that he can execute on what he says, even if it's a couple of years after he says he can do it. And can we just take a step back here and recognize that... At a time when you have a lot of people in Silicon Valley who are working on incremental products and you have engineers, some of the smartest engineers in the world, working on how to keep you on social media sites for just a few more moments each day, that we have someone coming out and thinking big about how to transform our energy system, but I think doing it in a realistic way too. So. I think we've been critical of a lot of plans you know let's talk about Bill Gates plan right I mean the guy's heart is in the right place but he's not he doesn't recognize all the deployment and the stuff that's going on today this is completely different Elon Musk is saying we're building on what we've already built here's the pathway to get there and although the details are still slim you can see this moving forward because the stuff that he wants to put together is already underway and I just kind of want to take a step back and recognize that like that's a pretty big deal at a time when we lack a lot of ambition, particularly in Silicon Valley.
2: No, I give him huge props. I think I was the only guy in the world to actually write something positive about the the Tesla solar city merger, right so i mean i'm i'm on I'm on board with his vision I, I look, I think Elon Musk is in a class of his own, and I think he deserves all the accolades he's getting. All I'm suggesting to you is as a capitalist. I don't think that he's like showing us a pathway to profit, right? And that's a big problem. You can't actually change the world like Apple did unless you actually become like a profitable company. And that's kind of the question that is on
0: everyone's mind, investor sentiment. So a lot of investors did buy that stock with the expectation that Elon was going to push into new areas and you know, not focus on incrementalism and and I don't know, I mean, the you know, the stock didn't do that well after the master plan was released, and he's clearly trying to explain himself and and use this to explain the potential solar city acquisition, which a lot of investors have questioned. But I, I don't know. I think the jury's still out. Like investors want to see Elon's big vision.
2: Well, I don't know. I think they want to see his big vision and then they wanna they want him to introduce the Tim Cook that's actually gonna execute it, it is very clear. Right, that the S has had huge problems with their transmissions and stuff and that they have not necessarily made a profit on each vehicle um, because they've had to they just repair everything, which is great for customer service, but not great for margins. And it's the X is just a disaster, right? A complete and utter disaster. They're just moving past it. Right. And so I just think this notion that they're on track to making the Model 3 works because SpaceX works, that's not even comparing apples and oranges.
1: Well, I how many other car companies are giving master plans of what they want to do and a vision for what they want to see the world in the future? So, I have I have a tip of the cap to him for that because uh, you know at least he's he's telling us what he want what he's striving striving to do and what his aspirations are.
0: It's that time of the show where we talk about our sponsor, Solar Edge. Solar Edge is branding itself not just as an inverter company or an optimization company, but a smart home company. Because solar PV systems, they're not just made up of a bunch of silicon and glass and metal, they have brains now. And Edge is leading the revolution in making PV systems smart. Solar Edge's insight was to see that a PV system is more than just a solar module. It's an architecture of smart modules, of inverters, of monitoring systems, and now batteries and home load management devices. The secret to adding intelligence to all these systems and bringing them all together is the inverter. On the horizon is a future where the smart solar edge inverter controls a smart home connected to the grid and to the cloud that controls energy production, your storage system, and even your appliances. Smart PV systems, they were just the start. The next step is the smart home and storage, and this future belongs to Solar Edge. To find out more about the future of energy, about the company, and about its products, visit solaredge.com. Let's talk politics now. Last week, the Republicans held their national convention in Cleveland, officially making Donald Trump their nominee for president. It was an incredibly foreboding and angry event, with speaker after speaker talking about locking up Hillary Clinton in jail and putting America on lockdown. There was virtually no attempt to weave a positive message. Instead, it played out kind of like an episode of Judge Dredd. The Democratic convention is in Philadelphia this week, and tensions are high there. Bernie supporters, uh, many of whom are the most vocal climate hawks, actually, are outraged by Clinton for her stances on trade and big banks, and outraged by the Democratic National Committee for favoring the Clinton campaign during the primary, according to leaked emails. It is not a picture of harmony there. You've probably heard enough from the pundits about all this discord. We're going to once again narrow in on the energy portion of the political race, now that we're entering the general election. Just before the convention, Hillary Clinton picked Virginia Senator Tim Kaine to be her running mate. Kaine's a moderate through and through, including on energy issues, and we're going to talk about his record and the reaction to that pick. Meanwhile, Trump is trying to build support from the oil and gas industry. He's reportedly considering fracking pioneer Harold Ham, historically a strong supporter of Republicans, as his energy secretary. But Trump has also had trouble raising money from the oil and gas industry, including from Ham himself. Let's talk about Tim Kaine first. Catherine, he's got a pretty long record on energy as both a senator and governor of Virginia. What does that record look like?
1: Yeah, and he's my senator, one of my senators, and I think he's wonderful. Um, Yeah, so he has a 91% lifetime LCV score. Uh, The Sierra Club and LCV have both come out very strongly in support of him. He opposed KXL. He's been part of this um, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse's web of denial where they get up and do colloquies about climate. He talks a lot about climate change. Norfolk, he says, is the second most vulnerable city to New Orleans to climate um he has you know really been very strong he's a very he's progressive he's just not really loud about it he's a you know he's a pretty low key person although he's been He was mayor of Richmond and governor of Virginia, and his wife just resigned uh, yesterday, stepped down as Virginia's secretary of energy. She's very accomplished. Ann Holton is the daughter of a former governor of Virginia herself, and very accomplished. And I think they they really add something to Hillary's team. I think they're gonna be very supportive of her. Remember, the vice presidential candidate is really supposed to support the presidential candidate. So, you know, Tim Kaine's specific energy record is good, but I don't think that is what makes or breaks what the Democratic platform is and what Hillary's going to be talking
0: about. So he's got this lifetime rating of 91%. By comparison, Mike Pence, the governor of Indiana, who's Trump's running mate, has a 4% lifetime rating, according to the League of Conservation voters. Stark difference there. And yet, a lot of climate hawks who are Bernie supporters some of them outright Bernie supporters say they that Kane hasn't yet earned their support and I guess the question is will those voters many of whom are really hardcore Bernie supporters will they go to Jill Stein the Green Party candidate or will they suck it up and vote for Clinton and I gotta tell you a few weeks ago I would have said yep they're gonna vote for Clinton they recognize that Trump is really bad news and. A couple of major environmental organizations have indicated as such. But I have been listening to a ton of interviews from the Democratic National Convention this week, hearing from so many Bernie supporters who say, we are going to actively campaign against Hillary Clinton. And they don't care. They they dislike Clinton more than they dislike Trump. And I've heard a few of these these uh, interviews. And I, I'm just thinking now, like, there are probably a lot of people out there Maybe a percent or two percent or something that could sway this election. And considering that we're in an election where a few percent of voters could completely sway the whole thing, climate may actually end up being like a factor here.
2: Well, I mean, solar is definitely going to be a factor in like places like Nevada, I think. But I, I mean, let's just back up for a second. Like, so one of the challenges I have with Tim Kaine, and I do like him a lot. I agree with Catherine, but um, is that Virginia is this. You know basically a hell hole in the middle that doesn't have really any positive legislation on solar wait and wind, a second Catherine. Did right?
0: you just call your home state a hellhole?
2: no but when you think about rps <laughs> standards we have consistent rps standards from maine all the way down to georgia and the the one state that basically you know until maybe this year who's been anti-renewables has been virginia and neither tim kane nor the other senator mark warner nor you know bob mcdonald really did anything about it and it's it frustrates the hell out of me virginia is the only state that deregulated and then re-regulated its markets
1: yeah and terry mcauliffe has been trying to work really hard too as governor and one thing that tim kane did was he filed an amicus uh defending the clean power plan so he's very supportive of the clean power plan and and that would impact the state um but i think i think there There are a lot of folks in the state of Virginia who do want renewables. The issue has always been the utility and that's really
2: tough. Yeah, but I'm just saying like, I mean, you know, full disclosure, I'm on the board of the climate hawks, but like, you know, I I get the fact that like this stuff is hard, but that's what I want to give people points for. I mean, that's the problem I have with the LCV score, which I think is complete crap. Like, I mean, to me, people should get scores for actually taking a risk and spending political capital. Not voting with the party on you know some vote so inside climate
0: News has done really fantastic reporting on kane's background, and in one of their stories they pointed out this um, this coal plant in Virginia that was approved a while back this six hundred and sixty eight megawatt coal plant called the the Wise county coal plant and it, it seems to indicate uh, kane's leadership style so he you know he had advertisements in the state uh, supporting this coal plant in 2012 uh, he also in those ads said that he supported renewables but he had people around him who pushed back on on the promotion of this coal plant and they ended up putting together like a really strict set of controls for sulfur dioxide and for mercury and as a result I think it like uh, it releases like somewhere around 90% less pollution than other coal plants. I, I don't have that statistic right in front of me, but it was dramatically lower. And so that's the kind of people that he's surrounding himself with that were like, he might be an all about all of the above kind of guy, but he's got a lot of sensible people around him keeping him in check. And he's been a clear supporter of renewables too. I, I just think that, that, you know, for people who are really skeptical well, of what him, does that wh- mean?
2: I mean, if you're a governor, and you don't, actually make solar and wind successful when every other governor was doing it, right? When he was governor from 2009 through sort of, you know, like, I mean, because he was governor during the Great Recession, when everyone else was doing renewables, you're like, "Ah, I didn't lift a finger, but I passed, I like voted to... like extend the itc and i voted to like expand net metering but not really a mandate for renewables etc like i've talked about this with jay Inslee and other people like i just my thing is is that like i'm happy to compare him to mike pence and we should definitely spend equal time there but i i do think that ultimately we need bold leaders and if someone's going to be like well you can build a coal plant that kills people as long as it kills people a little bit less
1: Okay, but wait a second. That does not matter for the presidential election. Can I just tell you right now, Bernie's influence on the Democratic platform was profound. And Clinton was already focused on climate change and focused on clean energy. But the second paragraph of the preamble of the Democratic platform talks about sun and wind power. Page two talks about having a clean energy superpower throughout is woven clean energy and climate with infrastructure, STEM, R&D, tribal, social justice issues. The platform has significantly changed because of Bernie's influence. And I just think we can't minimize that. And I think that's how they're gonna
2: get people over. And the last time the platform mattered was when?
1: Well, it gives them a roadmap. So the first 100 days, the president does actually have a plan. And and the first 100 days, that you are trying to get a lot of things done. And if they're out there talking about clean energy and infrastructure to enable that. I think that's something she's going to have to keep her word on.
2: Look, I like I like Trevor Hauser, who's doing a lot of this stuff for Hillary. I think Hillary's has done a great job. I think you're right. Bernie has done this, but that makes my point, which is that basically these milk toast middle of the road Democrats. Like bother me just as much as the right wing crazies because Tim Kaine isn't milquetoast. No,
1: he's really he not. He is.
2: I mean, look, the guy on civil rights is extraordinary, but on renewable energy and and promoting climate change, right? The guy is not making this his top issue. It's like, yeah, I vote for it when it comes up in front of me. The the guy represents a coal state. I mean, maybe in ten years' time, fifteen
0: years' time, someone who is from a coal state or a formal former coal state can stand up and take that stance, but like. Let's look at the reality of politics in these states. Catherine, I would love to hear your thoughts on this since you actually hail from Virginia. But like, I, I don't see Tim Kaine being elected in that state by taking the stance that you're outlining, Jigger.
2: What? You mean the largest economic development opportunity in the world? Yeah, that would be a shitty thing to yep, r- run Because on.
0: people in Virginia don't see Why it don't like that. Why
2: don't they? I mean, Bob McConnell was the one that was pushing
0: offshore wind. I'm not saying that we disagree on this. I'm saying that the local politics are a lot more different. We can sit here I'm just, behind I'm our microphones. We can not an apologist. I know you're not an apologist, and I think that's great. But we can sit here behind our microphones from non-coal states and talk about you know, how great this is when a lot of people are suffering and they just don't see it like that. We need to keep pushing that message forward because it's true. But that doesn't make it any more politically palatable in a state like Virginia today. Maybe in five years, that, that'll that be different if the message keeps get pu- getting pushed forward. But I don't think that Tim Kaine is a milquetoast politician because of the reality of politics. He's had a pretty good record.
1: Yeah, and he's had a record on a lot of other social and education issues too. Oh, so yeah. No, he's— just- it's not just uh you know we he's not you can only not only measure him by energy and i think no, we no. actually need to look at what the republican platform says too because it is in such stark t- contrast whether or not you think the platform means anything the republicans yeah. Good are yeah, really talking about scrapping all of the clean power plan and any kind of regulation for environmental protection at all which Jigger, if you want to talk about killing people, um, opening lands of all kinds up to drilling, offshore, you know, outer continental shelf drilling, reviving KXL, building more coal, mining for more coal. I mean, it is the complete opposite. And in fact, they say they will do nothing. That is anything like the Democratic plan. The only thing that they that they actually said that I thought was pretty funny was that they talked about storage. <laughs> they said, we want to find new ways to store electricity, which was like the only thing that they said that was positive about uh, anything kind of innovative
0: Catherine laying the groundwork for the Republican platform. Yeah, no, look, I
2: mean, look, let's let's all just agree the Republican party of today is off the rails. I honestly don't even know how they could be represented as a party. I mean, they're basically the party of extremists um, in every sense of the word. And it's sad. I mean, they've sort of pushed out anyone who actually has a moderate point of view of any type.
1: Or even major fundraisers, like even the major guys from ExxonMobil and those guys, they're not giving them money. I mean, they're they've backed out because what Trump is saying and how he's conveying his platform is really risky and uncertain. and they I don't think they feel like they can invest in him.
0: Well, yeah, that brings me to the, the portion of the show where we talk about Trump's push to get oil and gas support where he's not getting it. You know, the Koch brothers have decided to basically sit this national election out and focus their money on local elections. They hate both choices. Exxon, as you pointed out, Catherine, has not—like Rex Tillerson, the CEO, the CEO of ExxonMobil, um, gave $80,000 to Romney in 2012— He's only given uh you know actually he hasn't given any to Trump so far. Um he gave money to Jeb Bush's campaign last fall, but he's yet to uh support Trump specifically. The people like Harold Hamm, who I mentioned at the top of the show, who um really was a major like revolutionary figure in the fracking industry. Donated almost a million dollars to Mitt Romney's super PAC in April of 2012, and he's only donated $5,000 to Donald Trump because these guys have no idea what they're going to get with Trump. They know what they're going to get with Clinton. They have no idea clue what they're going to get with Trump. So many of them are donating to the party, they might be donating to local races, some of them to super PACs where you can't really track the money, but directly to the candidate, we're not seeing nearly that the amount of money that we saw for Mitt Romney in 2012. Very telling, I think.
2: But just to be just to say the other side of this, right? I mean, you know, when you look at Virginia, Virginia has a total of 1500 megawatts of any type of renewable energy. Um, Indiana has 1,700, most of which was built under Mike Pence over the last, you know, four years. So, I mean, for, for what it's worth, right, we can sort of lay all of this stuff down. But, I mean, look, for me, it's about, you know, how much stuff is happening. The good thing is Virginia is developing a lot of PJM sort of five megawatt projects. And Dominion is, like, starting to, you know, loosen the reins on some of the interconnection agreements and some of that stuff. But... You know, when it comes to actual megawatts in the ground, Indiana, which I think is a smaller state from a population perspective, has more absolute capacity.
0: Mike Pence, you're, you hail from the Midwest, Jigger. What do we know about Mike
2: Pence's record there in Indiana? He's crazy. Like, I mean, like, I, you know, when you think of like Steve King and the racist stuff he said during the RNC um, convention on TV, like Mike Pence is right there with him. Like, they. What about the energy and environment stuff? I think like Mike Pence, like most governors, do the same thing, right? They he he went to the trough and got as much pork as he could for Indiana, which included renewable energy projects and ethanol stimulus and funding. stimulus and and all that stuff. So look, I mean, you know, when someone wants to build a wind farm, he goes out and and you know and does what he can to make sure that it happens in his his state. So I mean, I think from that perspective, the utility companies are not as strong in Indiana as they are in Virginia.
0: I just want to wrap up with one final point, and I want to go back to your comment, Jigger, about when did the platform matter. I think this year the platform does matter a little bit more because the Clinton campaign has integrated a lot of what Sanders had been talking about on the campaign trail, as Catherine did point out. And a lot of that revolved around climate, and there was this big battle around getting support for a carbon tax. Hillary, the Clinton camp, didn't want to talk about a carbon tax and the Sanders camp like, forced that in. It's really important. And considering that you have so many people sitting on the fence not wanting to support Clinton, there, are, there, are, there is a swath of voters that may be more inclined to support Clinton because of the change in the platform.
1: Uh, Stephen, a couple things I wanted to push back on is I've been watching, I watched all last week mostly in a fetal position, um, and then this week because it was terrifying. And this week I've been watching a lot of the convention, and I just don't get the same sense now, um, this far into it, that there's as much disruption and as, and as many people, oh, just a handful of people walked out um when bernie handed off so you're saying you didn't agree yeah with i really d- yeah i really don't i really think like right now the polls show 90 percent of sanders supporters are going to vote for hillary i mean and i think that's just going to grow because I think he's all part of this he's been a really strong part of it she's given him total props for for getting as far as he did i mean they had to fight with each other because they were going for the nomination but now i do think they're coming together a lot more Um, And I think it's just a completely different tone than we see on the Republican side. And the other thing I wanted to mention on the Republican side is you mentioned Ham as potentially a secretary of energy. So just keep in mind that anybody who is in the administration has to divest. And why would anybody who is an oil mogul divest to be the secretary of energy? I mean, this is why we get academics in that role, because... It is really tough to do that, and that's why we don't get you know, utility execs and those folks because they have to divest.
0: What a good point. In all my conversations about this, no one has yet pointed that out. Well, I think that concludes our conversation about politics, so let's talk about something even more exciting than the national political season, and that is the gathering of the National Association of Utility Commissioners. Catherine's been down in Nashville, Tennessee this week for— the NARUC conference. Catherine. I heard regulators know how to party. Is that true?
1: Yes, they do. Um, yeah, there were some really great events, the Johnny Cash Museum and the Country Music Hall of Fame. It's uh, And there's just so much else there. Nashville is a really vibrant city, and I think everybody took full you know, uh, advantage of that.
0: Well, you're going to give us some intel from that conference. And I, I felt like uh, I was almost there yesterday. I'm not sure if you saw the tweet storm from utility dives, Gavin Bade, but he was tweeting out some of the more interesting quotes and controversies at the event. I saw you, Catherine, tweeting some stuff out. Basically, what I got was expect a lot more conflict over net metering and a lot more focus on comprehensive rate design. Catherine, you pointed us to this document published by NARUC over the weekend detailing how regulators can prepare for distributed resources, which is a positive sign and for some informed the meeting. Uh, what was the mood at the conference?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting because um, people have moved from, oh, New York is crazy, we're not going to do anything different, to, oh, New York is crazy, but we still probably have to do something different. <laughs> I mean, everybody's in agreement that they're not going to be New York. But there's there's a lot of other discussion and movement so a bunch on net metering. There were a lot of debates on net metering, but there was also a lot of conversation about community solar and demand response and distributed energy resources. And this um, this is the NARUC manual on distributed energy resource compensation, which was just put out as you know for for comment. And that was there was a lot of discussion around that. I mean, I asked a lot of questions of regulators and sort of said, "What do you think about this?" I ask people from the outside, and a lot of what I was hearing is that we need to to talk more about um, how process, like how do you actually put a process together that makes sense for doing new rate design, not just how do you go about figuring out how much it's going to cost a utility. And then also really dive into what are the benefits of distributed energy resources. Because that last word, resources, they still do not know and understand that those are actual resources to the utility.
0: I admittedly do not follow every report coming out of NARUC. Sorry, NARUC listeners. But this report did seem to be important, right? I mean, they're they're really encouraging... Regulators around the country to think comprehensively about rate reform to get out, out ahead of technology change, and it's not new. If you go to these conferences, they've been talking about this stuff for a while. But the the handbook that is out for comment seems to be pretty important.
1: Well, it's a start. Yeah? Is it, it, this?
0: I mean, is it? A, is it an important move by Nehru Like, is that a recognition that? big things are under are coming?
1: Yeah, but we have to be careful about what those big things might be. So, you know, one of the things is, yes, it, at least it's a bit of a tutorial about how rates are designed. But um, an environmental group came up to me while I was there and said, look, we sent a long letter to uh, Travis Cavula, who's the president of NARUC right now. And um, he he's sort of the one that's been pushing this manual to be done. And they said, like, let's slow down a little bit. Let's not try to ram something through because if you put something out and say, this is the way it should be done, it is really hard to change it once regulators take that. Um, So they really want they want a good process they want good data and transparent modeling they want a good sense of timing they kind of want them to slow down a little bit because their whole point is like fixed charges are the least effective way for utilities to adapt but we actually need to figure out what are the benefits and how do we look at benefits in a really holistic way rather than just having costs and if you look any of the um the debates that were occurring about net metering the people who are against net metering, all they were talking about was the cost rather than how everybody stands to benefit from distributed energy.
0: Herein lies the conflict. It makes perfect sense that you'd want to take your time on a document like this that will go out to regulators and inform their decision making. But they are already in many states saying, oh my God, look at how quickly this is coming and and taking a reactionary stance to some of the changes that we're seeing. So there's an inherent tension here that they need to work through.
1: Yeah, and I think that... making sure that the process is right so that everybody can participate, it's transparent, so that a lot of different um, ways of looking at cost benefits are included and so everybody doesn't stuck get stuck into one thing. And then I also talked to Rich Sedano, who's from the Regulatory Assistance Project, and he said, look at Rhode Island Docket 4600. So everybody go Google that. And he said, they're really looking I'm at the, edge the, of my seat. Yeah, the value of distributed energy resources. He said, it's a small state. They can really do this in a way that's comprehensive and thoughtful and like let's use one of those states as a model on how to get started with this rather
2: than looking to new york which everybody is just terrified of so can you unpack that for a second why is everyone so terrified of new york
1: well i think there were a couple things one is the timeline is um is very fast and aggressive and the goals are aggressive um, and it just seems that there's um, the utilities are. I mean, from what I can tell, they're pretty confused about what they're supposed to do. They don't. They don't understand how they're going to change. And I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. I think it's a. I think it's really interesting, and I think it's laudable that. Um, Audrey Zibelman's doing this, but what I think other states are looking at what she's doing and they're saying, we can't do that. So what can we do?
2: Right. But what do you think is going to happen in California? I mean, they're moving so slowly, but they're building a lot of renewables. And so it looks like the wholesale markets are going to collapse probably next year, where you've got entire parts of the day where where prior prices go to zero because of excess solar. Um, and then you still have low power prices at night. And so they're, they're already seeing shut-ins of large amounts of their natural gas capacity.
1: Yeah, so they may need to speed up. I'm not saying that some of them aren't going to have to move faster in certainly California. But I think what Rich was really telling me was, like, let's figure out what the big The basic questions are that you want to ask rather than just starting from the status quo and saying, all right, how do we move from the status quo? Like ask the questions like what are the cost benefits, costs and benefits that can be applied across the programs and at what level should they be quantified? How do we measure them? What's the level of visibility we need? All those questions that they need to ask in order to get themselves to a different place, rather than here's the status quo, how do we, you know, how do we change it ever so slightly so that we're comfortable with it?
2: And then what about, I thought the handbook was interesting where they had entire sections with lots of detail about how DERs were going to hurt poor people and other people in the same rate class and all that stuff. But then when it said the benefits are like, there's lots of benefits, but they need to be dug into more.
1: Yeah, so they're that's right. I mean that that show it shows a little bit about where they got their information from. So, I think that's why a lot of people want them to just like let's slow down, let's bring in more information, let's do more analysis and let's ask the right questions because, you know, let's start with what you've got and and work from there but don't try to ram something through in the next month.
0: Well, I think that concludes the show. Another good one and uh we'll finish off with something we may not know. We'll tell our listeners little anecdote from our jobs or from the news. And Catherine, you're up first this week.
1: Yeah, so I bumped into Commissioner Akiba from Hawaii uh, at NARUC. And we had talked last segment, last week, about um, Hawaii, um, the commission rejecting the Hawaiian Electric NextEra merger. And so, I just checked back in with her, and she was very strong about the decision and about what they had decided to do, and that that was very important and She had been very consistent on her position all along so I just wanted to to talk to her a little bit about it and I talked to someone else in the state who said it is really important that the that we still move forward despite the merger falling apart, that now that the decision has been made, things can can dockets and policy issues can keep going on storage and distributed resources and smart grid, things that had been kind of held up um, and on the back burner. So there were a couple of things. One is that in April, Um, Hawaii Electric submitted a smart grid plan, and it contained a lot of the building blocks that are going to get them to to the 100% renewable energy. And the other thing is that Hawaii Electric also withdrew their application to do liquefied natural gas as the bridge fuel to renewables. So those were two things that I picked up following up on our story um, about the merger falling apart that I thought were worth mentioning.
0: The post-merger politics will get really interesting in Hawaii. Jigger, what's your story
2: so uh the g twenty ministers got together and talked about fossil fuel subsidies last week, and um you know what was surprising was you know we kept talking about carbon taxes and cap and trade and some other stuff, but you know these guys can't even agree on a timeline for for phasing out fossil fuels, so they agreed that they have to phase out fossil fuel subsidies, sorry um but they can't agree on a timeline or hold each other accountable to doing it, and so there's very little confidence that it's actually going to happen.
0: Yeah, I have trouble just like even understanding the depth of fossil fuel subsidies when it comes to like consumption taxes and so forth. It's a sticky issue, that one.
2: Well, some of them are sticky, but some of them are simple. Like, I mean, the UK government just like, here, BP, take 150 million pounds so that you can help drill in the North Sea again.
0: I have a quick congratulations to the Swiss pilots, Bertrand Picard and Andre Borschberg who yesterday completed their 26,700-mile trip around the world in a solar airplane. They began on March 9th of 2015, and they completed it yesterday. And uh, just a really remarkable remarkable feat. Um, Bertrand Piccard had a quote today, I think it was in an NPR story, where he said, you know, in 10 years, I think we'll see solar-powered airplanes carrying passengers around on short flights so i'm we're gonna invite him or andre borsberg on the podcast i've reached out to their press team and they are working on getting us an interview so that'll be really interesting and i just wanted to to congratulate them because uh, in a time when things feel very dark it really is uh, you know a moment of of hope and aspiration that we com- that they completed this trip
2: I was really, I was truly inspired. I, uh, I love that stuff. It's like similar to when Richard Branson was taking a hot air balloon across the Atlantic, or some of these other things. Like I love all of this stuff where people are taking personal risk um, and adventure.
0: So I guess Elon Musk should abandon his master plan and revise it just to focus on solar airplanes.
2: Yeah, as long as he's not promising investors returns, I'm inspired.
0: <laughs> That's the show this week, folks. We are. On every podcast app you can imagine, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher. We're now on Google Play. Uh, we're on Overcast. We, you know, we got our RSS feed there on the website, Green Tech Media, so you can integrate us into any other podcast app you might use and that we're not keeping our eyes on. Whatever the kids use these days. Um, you can also email us at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. We love to hear from folks. We like your ideas. We like your responses to the show. And uh, we've got a, a live show coming up in October that we've been talking about at the South by Southwest Eco Conference. That'll be fun. And uh, other than that, I think that wraps up the show. Thanks for listening. With Katherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are the Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com.